We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 28. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we should have some in the, the seats in front of you that you can use this morning. If you don't own a Bible, you can take that home as your gift. Desperation, dependence, and darkness. Sounds like a real uplifting sermon today. <clears throat> Sorry, we'll get to the uplifting part. I'll get there. But we are getting to the end of 1 Samuel. And as we approach the end, it is the end of Saul as we get closer. We're not there yet. In chapter 31, we'll see his demise, but it's not looking good for him. It's not looking good for him um, as David and Saul are being more and more contrasted and David rises to power and Saul um, becomes more and more a cautionary tale for us, but one that we can um, look at and, and learn from and, and really embrace God's grace in our own life. So if, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading... Chapter 28, beginning in verse 3, through the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. And the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul had the army, when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. And then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. 
Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand, and have listened to what you have said to me. Now therefore you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go your own way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread on it, of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. And then they rose and went away that night. This is God's word. You may be seated. Pray with me. Father, would you humble us as we come before you? Remind us. Remind us that we, without your restraining grace, could be just like Saul. So humble us and cause us to be thankful. For you're with your people. You're with all those who humble themselves and come to you and draw near to you and seek you, even in the darkness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we are uh, getting into fall, we're on about a, what, a month and a half, a little less than two months from Halloween. And I believe we've arrived at the spookiest passage of all of the Old Testament. Spooky, isn't it? We have a, a witch. We have an apparition or a ghost. Right, so we have sorcery going on. Very strange, very spooky, very mysterious. And there's a lot of questions. This passage has really um, stumped a lot of commentators. How do we understand all the details? What's going on? Where is this truly Samuel coming back from the dead? Is it a trick that this sorcerer is playing? Um, does she, is she the one in control? Or is God in control of this event? And what does this say about Saul and his the end of his state, his soul. Where does he end up? Where is he going? What do we do with this text? There's a lot going on. I wanted to read, I'm going to read several quotes throughout the sermon from Dale Ralph Davis. He has a lot of great quotes. I've, I've, I've quoted him a lot through preaching through First Samuel. But he says, what do we do with this text? He says, let it frighten you. Let it frighten you. And he says that not because all of these things, wizards and witches and sorcery and ghosts. But the idea of, of Saul's demise, his, his, this is scary for him. He is going deeper and deeper into darkness. He says, don't try to tidy things up with questions about whether Saul was really saved. He says, remember uh, A.W. Tozer says about uh, this guy Demas in the New Testament who uh, Paul rejected for his rejection of Christ, asking if he's finally lost or saved. All I can say, Tozer says, is that the last time we see Demas, he was walking in the wrong direction. And that's what we can say about Saul, right? He's walking in the wrong direction at the end of his life. He's walking out into the night, cut off from God and his word. And it's meant to be scary. It's meant to be scary. And that's not necessarily bad. 
'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Right? It's grace that teaches us to fear. So what I want you guys to, to get from this is that when times are dark, which this passage is dark, we run to God because he is there. Even when times are dark. We're going to look at three truths or three aspects of Saul's walking from God. It's his desperation, his dependence, and his darkness. Turn to verse 3 with me and see how this is shaping up. We see, we see this uh, reiteration that Samuel has died. Right, he died previous, years, years before this probably, probably, chapters before this, but it's a reminder that he's not here anymore, right? He's, he's, he's dead, he's in the grave, and they mourn for him. And then, so we're getting some context, right? Samuel's dead, and Saul has put out the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. So that's context, right? And now we see the Philistines, right? The Philistines, this army that is constantly waging war against Israel, assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and encamped at Gilboa. So they're arranging to battle once again, and he is scared. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know if he's going to win this battle. His, it says in verse 5, his heart trembled greatly. But the worst of all is in, chapter, is in verse 6. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Remember, Urim was uh, sort of like Lot's that were in the ephod of the priest, that they could sort of get a yes or no answer from God. But he wouldn't get an answer from God that way either. Complete silence. Complete silence. And remember in 1 Samuel, silence from God means something. This has happened several times throughout 1 Samuel. If you go all the way back to chapter 3, verse 1, in the temple, when Samuel's a boy... It says, the word of the Lord was rare. There was no frequent vision. And this was during the time of Eli, the priest, and his sons. If you remember that, the unfaithfulness of the priesthood. If you, Del Ralph Davis says, if you persistently refuse to obey God's speech, you will endure God's silence. That is what we see time and again in 1 Samuel. If you re- disregard his speech, do not obey him, you'll endure his silence. And so we see a desperate Saul, don't we? We see he's very desperate. But desperation is not bad in and of itself. Desperation can be a good thing. Desperation can lead us the right way or it can lead us in the wrong way. And here we see Saul's desperation is misdirected. Before we get to the scene with the medium, let's think about what he wants in in his heart. He doesn't want God. He wants information. He doesn't want communion with God. He wants information. He wants to know what's going to happen in the battle. Del Ralph Davis says, Saul wanted the results of God's favor rather than God's favor. And that is what he's done time and time again. His desperation and our desperation can be misplaced and misdirected. But... Desperation can lead us to finding help in the right places, can it? I was just reminded of this when I was reading to the kids uh, the story of Jonah. 
And when Jonah goes finally to the Ninevites after going into the, the depths of the sea and swallowed by the fish and then spit out on land, he finally preaches to the, to the Ninevites. And they become desperate when they hear his message. What do they say? So the word reached the king of, the, of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He's desperate. What was the message that Jonah said? In 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. This message of judgment. And so the king issues a proclamation all throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. So he, he institutes this fast. They become desperate for the Lord. Their desperation led them to the right place. Another example is in Matthew chapter 9, where we read of this woman who's been ill for a very long time. And she comes to him while he's on his way to, Jesus is on his way to heal someone else. A woman who'd suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Right? She was desperate. She had tried all the doctors, all the gurus. Nothing had healed her. She was desperate to get to Jesus. If she could only touch his cloak. That's the kind of desperation we need to be driven toward God. It's not bad in and of itself to be desperate. It leads you to your knees before the throne of grace. And so in that case, we all need to be desperate. I need to be desperate. You know, believers in God eventually see that the clearest evidence for God, that he's not turned away from you, is that even in his absence, right, even when he feels absent, we keep turning to God. We keep turning back to him. We keep going back to him because he is the only place that we can find solace. There's a scene in John chapter 6 when Disciples, people are leaving Jesus because of his teachings. People are, are walking away from him after he's teaching that no one can come to the Father except through the Son. They say, this is a hard saying. Who could listen to it? And Jesus asked his disciples, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to walk away from me? Are you going to leave me? Do you remember what Peter said? Lord, to whom shall we go? Who, who can we go to? There's no one else we can go to. You are sufficient. You have the words of eternal life. We've believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. When you're desperate, you've got nowhere else to go. There's a psalm, I don't know if you've read it lately, Psalm 88, and they call it the darkest psalm because in many psalms, there is darkness, there is difficulty that the psalmist is, 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 is calling out to God. And then there's a turn of thanksgiving or a turn of, God, you relieved me, you relieved my burden, you're near to me. Psalm 88 doesn't have that turn. It is dark all the way through. 
But you know what encourages me about Psalm 88? Is that the psalmist, even in the darkness, even when there's no turn of feeling God's nearness, he's still praying. He's still reaching out to God again and again and again, calling out to him. It's a psalm for those people who've ever been in this place. Maybe you've been that person where the darkness does not relent. You keep calling out to him. You keep crying out to him. Del Ralph Davis says, The believer is concerned with God's absence rather than with a lack of insight for his or her current problem. It's more about you don't have God than you don't have the right answers. Others, however, may be more concerned with guidance than with knowing the guide. Spiritual desperation can be misdirected. But here's the good news. God is always there for people who are desperate for him. If you're desperate for him, if you reach out to him, if you feel your way toward him, he will always be there. You'll always find him. But if we're like Saul, whatever we run to to relieve our desperation, you'll become dependent upon. So he's desperate, and then he runs to something that is outlawed, that's not going to work, and he becomes dependent upon it. Look at verse 8 and following. So he finds out there's this witch, this medium, at Endor. Right? A medium is able, supposedly, to speak to the dead, to sort of to bridge that gap from, the, from living t- to the dead. And so he inquires of her, and he, he goes down there, he disguises himself, he has two other servants with him, and he comes to the woman by night, and he says, Divine for me a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. Before we get into their conversation, Saul is really a desperate man, so he's trying anything, isn't he? He's going to anything that could possibly work. And it reminds me that believing nothing leads to believing anything. Right? If you do not, if you're not put your eggs in one basket, if you're not trusting in one thing, you'll believe anything. I think our culture is moving more and more, not irreligious or unspiritual, but more spiritual. As you reject the living and true God, you'll believe anything. You'll become more religious, more spiritual. This is the presence of religion in Saul's life. He's willing to put his faith in anything. There's a story of in Germany, at the end of World War II, uh, Hitler's pro- uh, minister of propaganda, uh, Goebbels, I think his last name is, he was talking to Hitler and he was excited one day because uh, FDR had died. And he was like, this is great news, Hitler. And you know what? He even talked about, he was like, Hitler, I've looked at the stars and the stars are all aligning. And he, so he was really into astrology. And what the astrologists were saying is that they, they would have, this would be a rough month, and then they would have three more months where they would win the war. And of course, the next, at the end of April that year, Hitler killed himself. But it goes to show that you'll believe anything. You'll trust in anything if you've rejected God. You'll put your hope in anything. It reminds me of Paul in Acts 17 when he goes to Athens. He says, I can see you Athenians are very religious They had a statue to every god and even a statue to the unknown god. They didn't want to leave one out. There's this phrase. I don't remember where it came from. I remember it as a young person. 
this idea of a cafeteria religion. Do you remember, cafeterias used to be a lot more popular back in the day, but you'd go along this restaurant cafeteria, you'd pick everything you wanted from your appetizer to your entree to your dessert. For me, I would get jello often. But you, you have to pick and choose what you want. That's how many people think about religion. I'll have a little Christianity, a little Judaism, a little Islam. I don't want to leave anything out, right? don't want to overlook. Yahweh, for Saul, was just another option amongst many. And that's not belief in God. That's not true belief in God when he is just an option. And there's an interesting uh, note in 1 Chronicles 10. It talks about Saul's unbelief. He says, he consulted a medium, 1 Chronicles 10, verse 13. Saul consulted a medium, and he did not seek guidance from the Lord. And so the Lord put him to death. But in our text, it says that he did inquire of the Lord. It says in verse 6, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. So is First Chronicles wrong? That he didn't inquire of the Lord? No, it's insightful. What it's saying, it's very nuanced. What it's saying is, if you inquire the Lord and inquire through other means, trusting in other gods, that's not inquiring of the Lord. That's going around God. That's not believing in God. And so here we see him seeking this pagan religion through a medium, this witch. And so he goes to this woman at night. I think that's significant. At night, he's under the cover of darkness. That's also a spiritual idea as well. He tells her to to divine a spirit for him, to bring someone up for him. But catch the irony here. In verse 9, Surely you know, the woman says, what Saul has done how he's cast off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? Isn't that ironic? It's the witch, it's the medium who is saying, ah, this doesn't sound like a good idea, Saul. She's the one who's, who's more righteous than him. He's breaking God's law. And she's thinking, I don't know if we should be doing this. And he tells her to bring up um, Samuel. We read in Leviticus 20, verse 6 and verse 27, that mediums and necromancers uh, were, were outlawed, were prohibited in Israel. You'd be put to death. The medium would be put to death. Stone with stones and their blood would be upon them. I want you to get this, though. The Bible recognizes and doesn't dismiss the reality of the spirit world. Right? Nowhere in the Bible does it say that what the woman would do here, what the witch would do here, would be ineffective. That's not the argument. It could be effective. There there are evil forces in the world, evil spirits. The Bible recognizes the reality of the spirit world. That's why they were prohibited. So the question becomes, is in this scene, is the power of God on display, or is this evil spirit at work through the witch. And I want to, just to jump right to it, I want to I go to verse 12 and, and share with you my opinion. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. She cried out with a loud voice. You know, it's never a good sign 
when the person you've hired to perform a service cries out in surprise or fear when they're doing their job. It typically means things are not going according to the plan, right? So say you go to the, the car mechanic, and you, um, you don't want to hear the car mechanic cry out when he's looking under the hood, right? That's not a good sign. Or if you have a contractor looking under your house, like we recently had some, some house uh, issues under, on our crawl space. Um, so you have a contractor under your house. You don't want to hear screaming from under the house. It's not a good sign. The same idea is at play here. She's not the one in control. She screams because she is not used to seeing this happen where uh, she says it's like a god is coming up. She calls Samuel a god coming up from the earth. God is the one who's doing this, not her. She's not in control. He's bringing up Samuel to remind him of his word and to, and to ultimately bring judgment upon him, which we'll read in a few verses. But notice the ironic nature of what Saul's doing here. He, he, he likes to sound religious, doesn't he? Go back to verse 10. Saul swore to her, by the Lord, as the Lord lives. He uses the name of Yahweh there. As Yahweh lives, no punishment will come upon you. How can he take God's name on his lips while he's doing this? It's like Saul is, it's like a woman with her lover having an affair and swearing by the life of her husband. But let's think about it and apply it to our, to our own lives, do you know how to just sound religious like Saul? Do you know the right words to use? Are we just playing the role of a Christian as he is playing the role of a believer? Let's take that to heart. That's not what we're called to do. God wants our hearts. He doesn't want our words. He wants our hearts. Are we obeying God today from our hearts? Are we dependent upon Him for all things? Psalm 63 says, My soul thirsts for you, my God. Are you dependent upon God in that way? And not dependent upon the things of this world? God wants you to be more and more dependent on Himself. That's what prayer is all about. We studied prayer this past summer as a church. First chapter is, is, is called dependence. Prayer is about being dependent. The more dependent you are on God, the more you will grow into a mature believer. To put it bluntly, the way to Christian growth is to become childlike. Does that make sense? To become more dependent. God is always there for people who are dependent on him for everything. Where Saul is, is playing this game, trying to get an answer in any way he can, he's not being dependent on God. He's being dependent upon this pagan religion. Dependence on anything other than God leads to complete darkness. And that's where our text takes us, to complete darkness. In verse 15 and following, as Samuel is brought up by God, and he says to Saul, Why have you disturbed me? 
by bringing me up. And Saul answers, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I've summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And interestingly, Samuel says, Why then have you asked me, since the Lord's turned away from you and become your enemy? It reminds me what um, one of my children does often. Uh, he'll, she'll, she'll come to me. I didn't want to give her identity, but I did. She'll come to me and ask me for something, say, ice cream. Uh, and then I say, no. And then I hear her in the next room asking mom for ice cream. Saul's doing something similar. He's already heard from God, and now he's trying to bring up Samuel to see what the answer is from him. And Samuel's saying, don't turn this around. God's already given you an answer, and he gave it through me. Samuel's saying, me and God, we're united on this issue, Saul. And And the answer is going to be judgment. Verse 17, the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Remember, this was back in chapter 15, when this was the first really big disobedience that Saul did. He did not totally wipe, up, wipe out Amalek and all the people there and all of the sheep and the oxen. He took the sheep and oxen for himself and didn't obey God. And Samuel continues, Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And here's the kicker. Tomorrow, you and your sons shall be with me. What's Samuel saying? Tomorrow, you're going to die with your sons in this battle. L. Ralph Davis says, The most hopeless misery in all of life is to be abandoned by God. And that is where Saul is ending up. You know, interestingly, God will eventually give us what we want. If we don't want him, he'll give it to us. And that's what hell is. It's getting what we, in the end, wanted. And that's not to be with him. And we'll become more and more hardened by sin's deceitfulness if we let it continue. Brother and sister, the worst judgment is reserved not for those who've never heard the gospel, but for those who hear it and reject it. I'm going to say something that might, might shock you. Sitting in church can be a dangerous thing. Sitting in church can be a dangerous thing. If you fail to respond to this word, there will come a time that you'll be so hardened that you can't, that you won't respond to it the longer you sit under the word and don't respond to it, don't truly believe in it. You know, we hear about deathbed conversions, and they certainly have happened and can happen by God's grace. But guess what? Some don't get a deathbed. Some don't get a deathbed. No one's promised that. This may be the last sermon you hear. This might be the last sermon I preach. We're not promised another moment. Are we running to him? Are we truly obeying? Are we truly wanting and seeking God? 
you know, one of the main jobs of a pastor is, is to prepare you to live well, but also to prepare you to die. Are you prepared? Are you prepared? And that is the message Saul is getting. He says, tomorrow you're going to die. What a gift, actually, to Saul to even tell him a day before so he can prepare himself. So we don't know what's going on in the internal, his heart regarding all this. But I want to end with hope. Where can we find hope in a text like this? Well, when the darkness is all around, there is a light that shines in the darkness. And I led with it in the earlier readings of, the, of this service. Friends, the light that we have is the hope of the gospel, the cross, and the resurrection. You know, funerals are hard to go to. They're really hard when, you, when we have no sign that the person was a believer, but funerals can be hope-filled when you go to the, a funeral of a believer, truly devoted their lives to Christ, there's hope there. There's light there in the midst of a dark time. You recall the disciples after Jesus died on the road to Emmaus, they're hopeless. Jesus is dead. They have no sign of his resurrection. And here he comes, walks alongside them and, and, gives, and reveals himself to them. And, and then they have hope. I have hope. You know, two times in chapter 28, it's mentioned that it was night. Paul, or sorry, Saul, at the end here, walks out into the night after giving a meal from this witch, a meal fit for a king, his last supper, so to speak. He walks out into the night. It reminds me of when Jesus was being betrayed. It says in John 13, Judas walked out and it was night as he went out to betray him. This is not just, I think that wasn't just mentioned to tell us the time of the day. It was to tell us the spiritual darkness that was at play. If you don't know Jesus, let me warn you today, without him, your day of reckoning, like Saul's, is coming. If you don't know Jesus, your day of reckoning is coming. But here's the hope. From Matthew 27, from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. This is when Jesus is being crucified. Darkness covers the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit and died. Jesus was forsaken. His day of reckoning happened. So, let me remind you, God is always there for people in darkness because Jesus entered into that darkness for us. With Jesus, your day of reckoning has already passed because he bore it on the cross. He took your sin. He took your shame. He became forsaken so you could be redeemed. Our darkness was turned into light because he took it. Jesus' darkness becomes your everlasting light and life. So let me ask you a couple questions as I close. Are you desperate to be healed? Are you desperate? Or are you sort of just walking along, sort of playing this game, this religion game, 
Are you dependent upon Him for everything? Are you depending on other things to sustain you? And did Jesus walk this dark valley to give you light? Can you say that personally? That His darkness that He undertook on the cross gave me light, gave me life. I pray that's true for you. If you hear God's voice speaking to you today, do not, like Saul, harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. And we're going to see how his life ends up in the coming chapters, in the coming weeks, as we begin to wrap up First Samuel. Would you pray with me? Father, it's a, a somber text. But we need to hear these words. This is written for our edification to point us to our great hope it's not ourselves it's not anything this world can offer yet again and again you remind us it's only found in you it's only found in what christ has done to save us so lift up our eyes lift up our head encourage us to stay faithful because jesus stayed faithful for us it's in his name we pray amen